I am so grateful to be a part of this church family. I really am. I feel so blessed. It's a, it's a, a very unique and wonderful group of people. I'm very thankful for it. Well, if you would, get your Bibles out. You're going to need them today. We've got at least three places we're going. Well, good morning. Uh, last week I asked a question I'd like to ask again. Did any of you make a New Year's resolution? You did raise your hand. Okay. Few? Okay. Um, first, do I need to congratulate anyone on not making any resolutions because you're already perfect just the way you are? <laughs> got a few Calvins in here. All right. All right. Yeah. Um, for those of you that did make a resolution, have you already broken it? No? One? <laughs> I won't call you out. Um, what is a New Year's resolution? I mean, essentially, it's a decision that we make to ourselves, right? I mean, it's something that we, we say, this is what I'm, I'm going to do, or this is something I'm not going to do. And, and we, we do this, but we may not have all that much intention on following through. And, and I mentioned last Sunday, there's a danger, I think, in making resolutions if we're not really going to try to keep them. And the reason that there's danger is there's a precedent that we're setting for ourselves. Now, now please don't misunderstand. It is, it is valuable to make commitments, okay? Especially things that are healthy or that are beneficial or that are just morally right. It's good to make resolutions. But if we get used to committing to change and then not doing what we say we're going to do, that's really not good for us. Because what does that do? Essentially, we're training ourselves to break our commitments. And that's not good you know, on any level for us. Not physically, not mentally, spiritually, emotionally, uh, psychologically. It's not good for us. And so there's a lot of scriptures uh, about speaking without thinking. And, and here's a couple of doozies uh, that I've got for us. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 says, Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, because God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And then just a couple of moments later, it says, Solomon stresses that God has no pleasure in fools. Okay? Now remember, this is the author of Proverbs, okay? whom God granted extraordinary wisdom to, although he didn't always use it. And he grew up on a steady diet of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, it includes this particular gem. Uh, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself with a pledge. Did I go backwards? I'm sorry. What happened there? Huh. Oh, I mixed him up. He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Well, yeah, wow. And then on top of this, Jesus says we would be acquitted or condemned by our words, which is pretty terrifying to me because I have, I have a bad habit of saying things without thinking sometimes. This is kind of a heavy opener, right? I mean, you might be sitting here going, oh, thanks for that depressing thought, you know. Uh, but, but listen, I'm not saying this to beat anybody down I, I, or, or, or to convince us that resolutions are bad in general because they're not, Okay. By resolution, I mean deciding something with great resolve, real determination, which is actually 
an essential part of the Christian life. That's what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit's going to get across to us today. So uh, we're going we're gonna to pray. We'll ask the Lord for that. God, I, I ask in Jesus' name today that you help each one of us, Father, to be receptive. Lord, I, I pray that you'll help, that your Holy Spirit will get across to us the importance of having resolve. Help us to be truly resolved in the things that we believe, in the things that we follow, in the things that we say and commit to. God, help us because we want to be like Jesus and that we always keep our word. And God, I pray that today um, that not one person leaves here without gaining something, something valuable, something that they can take home and chew over with their minds. We want to be good soil. And we pray that your word will take root and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, friends, how many of y'all, and, and, and non-friends, you know, how many of y'all are uh, familiar with Jonathan Edwards? Anybody know Jonathan Edwards? Do any of you know him personally? <laughs> no? Nobody? Okay, good, because he lived about 300 years ago. Um, one thing, see, he was an interesting guy. Uh, he was a preacher in New England, again, about three centuries ago, and he dealt with a lot of heartache in his church career. Uh, Edwards was not a dynamic speaker, okay? In fact, he was so convicted that the power of God was in the Word rather than in the preacher. He would preach in a monotone voice. He would read his manuscripts written uh, beforehand. He would read them directly without looking up at the congregation. And while I don't necessarily agree that that's the best way to do it. He wrote some amazing things, including perhaps the most famous sermon of all time that's not actually in the Bible. How many of you have heard of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Most of us have heard of it. That was Jonathan Edwards. Now, despite his oddities, or maybe in part because of them, um, God also used Jonathan Edwards in large part in his revival in that part of the country. Um, so much so that we're still hearing about him three centuries later. And one thing that Edwards is famous for was writing a series of 70 resolutions. Okay, these are things that, that he, was, he was convinced of, he was determined that he was going to do these things, even though he knew he would do it imperfectly. And so I want to share just a handful of them with you. One of them is right here, resolved, he says, always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. It's pretty cool. Another one is resolved after afflictions to inquire, what am I better for them? What good have I got by them and what I might have got? Did I say that right? And what I might have got by them. So that's nice. He's saying, you know, in, in all the, the difficulties, all the struggles that I've had, how can I grow? How can I gain from those? Another is resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. By the way, the reason that so many uh, resolutions fail, it isn't just a lack of willpower in the moment, it's a lack of resolve in the long game. You know, we're quick to say, well, I broke my resolution, no point in trying to do it now. You know, instead of saying, all right, I fell down, it's time to, time to get up, <laughs> time to renew my resolve, time to keep going. And I think that Mr. Edwards understood that. Uh, the next one here is resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Think about that. This one really hits me because of the preface. 
He says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Y'all, that's deep. You know, this guy died at age 56. I was after being the president of, I believe, Princeton. And uh, you know when he wrote this? Guess. He was 19 years old. When he wrote these 70 resolutions. 19, friends. So while the kids are finding uh, the half dozen bingo pictures here, let, let's talk about the format of today's message, okay? We're, we're going to look at the stories of three different people in Scripture that all have amazing parallels between them. In fact, it's including even their names, okay? And they're separated by about 1,400 years of history. And one of them is almost right in the middle, which is kind of neat. But we're going to see how these, these biblical figures can teach us uh, about being truly resolved. So we're going to see what we can learn from them. And the first of them is a familiar one. We're going to talk about Joshua of Old Testament fame. Remember Joshua? He was one of the 12 men who went to spy on Canaan. You remember that story? Ten were bad and two were good. Yeah, okay, some of you guys remember that. Um, he, went, he was one of the two spies who followed God's command, who said, yeah, we, we really should take on this, these nations. Of course, the people tried to have them stoned to death, and, and then what ended up happening was they were the only two people over the age of 20 who were able to, the only two men anyway, over the age of 20 that were actually able to be in the promised land 40 years later. Amazing story. But uh, he later became Moses' protege, and then he led Israel in conquering the promised land. Joshua is famous as a man who experienced God's work in his people in mighty ways. He saw the Lord decimate Egypt with plagues. He saw manna from heaven and water from a rock. He saw the Jordan River parted. He saw the walls of Jericho fall. And he saw the sun standing still in the sky. He saw some incredible things. And his entire adult life was in service to the Lord, and he was trusting that God would faithfully fulfill his promises to his people. And then after, after Joshua had completed uh, the vast majority of bringing God's people into Canaan and wiping out all the evil nations there, he went to the leaders of the people and he warned them about how they would need to respond to God in the future. Which brings us to a very famous quote we read this morning. And turn with me if you would. Um, go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15. He said to them, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Why isn't it changing? There we go. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. I want you to pause there for a second, okay? Obviously, we know that Israel was enslaved in Egypt. But I think, I think sometimes we kind of just passively assume that all along that they were just trusting in God and awaiting their deliverance. And it doesn't really seem to be the case from what we read here. Because if we, if we look at the story, it's pretty clear not all of them were super enthused about Yahweh. During that time, you remember some of them were like, Moses, go away. You're making this harder for us. 
And when you add Joshua's words here, it sure appears as though some of them, were, these Israelites were probably worshiping Egypt's so-called gods, along with the Egyptians, which could explain why the, the ten plagues, it's really, I never noticed this until someone pointed out to me, and now it's just, it, it's, so, it's so cool and so clear. The ten plagues, each one of them appears to be a not-so-subtle dig against one of the false gods of Egypt. You know, Ra, the sun god, you know, he... he he makes the sun go dark for three days. You know, there was a, a god of the Nile, per se. He turns it to blood. I mean, everything that God did was completely in the face of these false gods and, and revealed him to be the true God. Anyway, reading on. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Now, apparently this, this had already been a temptation for the people of Israel. Isn't it interesting to think about, they, they saw, many of them, the same things that Joshua saw, and they were still tempted to worship other gods. And isn't it wild, when you think about it, that Joshua never gives the alternative of not worshiping any gods? You know, atheism is actually, wasn't that common in history? It really wasn't. That, that just wasn't even something that ancient people would have considered. And the idea that the earth is just a big cosmic accident, that wasn't widespread back then. And so, so many of the people that he was addressing here, you know, again, they'd seen the same miracles that he had. But the most important part of Joshua's speech, I think, is the last line, which we're all familiar with. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I believe there are some things here that are very instructive for us. Okay, first, notice that he listed and rejected the other potential options. You might wonder why this matters. And so I want you to just forgive me if, if this part I'm about to say, if this sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but I'm not sure everybody realizes this. Okay, When we commit to a specific thing, it is always to the exclusion of something else in some degree. I'm going to say that again. Whenever we commit to a specific thing, it is always to the exclusion of something else to some degree. So like, if you decide, I'm going to work out three times a week, then there are other things during that space and time that you cannot physically do. Now, you might be able to listen to a podcast, but you're probably not going to be able to do a craft. <laughs> you know, there, there are certain things that can't be done at the same time. If you commit to wake up early in order to read the Bible and to be in prayer. Uh, you know, if you choose that over extra sleep, or at least, you know, you're going to go to bed earlier in order to, to get up early. So, so it's something that you might have been doing late that night that you're not going to get to do. Does that make sense? You're giving something up. Though, so then there are the commitments that are a whole lot more involved. You know, once you make them, they take a whole lot of potential choices away from you. For instance, having children. You know, that, that makes everything different in your life from what it would have been. It's totally worth it, but it limits your options. And when you get married, typically part of your vows are that you, you are promising before God and before man to forsake all others. So committing to an exclusive thing or an exclusive relationship means necessarily rejecting other options. And I don't think we always count the cost. I don't think it always clicks 
for us. And God has made it very clear in Scripture that serving Him means not serving anything else. Not serving other gods. Obviously, we serve one another, but not in an idolatrous sense. We don't put anything on the throne of our hearts except God. So Joshua was encouraging the people to consider what they would have to give up. And then he says that he is resolved to serve the Lord. Now in saying this, Joshua was entering into a willing covenant with anyone with an earshot that he was going to serve Yahweh God. Okay? Now I, I want to make something very clear. I, I hope everyone in this room is listening. I want you to hear what I have to say. If you're online, I want you to hear this. Okay? Please, please pay attention. If you have willingly entered the waters of baptism, that was your public declaration that you are resolved to follow Christ. Okay? So scripture says that when we are baptized into Christ, we're baptized, it says, into His death, into the forgiveness of sins. We're into five different things. This is not to be taken lightly. And it's not to be taken back. And if you have observed a baptism here at Crossroad, then you may remember being asked corporately as a group if you will commit to hold that person accountable to their confession. And chances are you said yes. You entered into a commitment. That's also not to be taken lightly nor taken back. This is a good thing. Okay? And let's not forget also that Joshua resolved on behalf of his house. Now, if you are a Christian, which is also a parent, let me encourage you to make this the greatest focus of your life, to raise your children in the Lord. That should be the greatest focus outside of being connected with God yourself. It should be to raise your children in the Lord. There's no greater, there's no more permanent bond that can be made than the one between a sinner and his Savior. And that begins in the home. It is not, I want you to hear this, it is not enough to bring your children to church. Okay, You need to bring the church to them every single day in your home. I'm not saying you call everybody and invite them over every single day. I'm saying you are bringing the love of Christ, the truth of Christ, into your home. That is your smallest, most intimate community. You need to be bringing the church there just as you are bringing the kids to church. That needs to be every single day. It needs to be with your actions and with your words. Now, most of you, I look around this room, most of us probably don't have children in their home anymore, um, but your house should be a place of blessing for others. It should be a place of hospitality, a place of grace. And the way that you treat your spouse, that should be, people should look at you and the way that you respond to your spouse, whether you're the husband or the wife, they should look at you as a couple and that should help them know more about the God that you are resolved to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's, that's the first character. Second one came along just about seven centuries later. And he was uh, the lesser known of the three that we're going to look at. He was a young man named Josiah. You may have heard of him. Josiah was a king. Much of his story, um, I, I just, I'm just going to read it, okay? Because there's so much here. Um, so you might want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. 
Um, Josiah became king at only eight years old. But he listened to the counsel of godly people that were over him, and he was already learning to be a good king when something happened to accelerate the process, okay? The priests had been fixing up God's temple, which had fallen into disrepair under a, a previous evil king. When they came across a book of the law, can you imagine if the book, if, if we didn't have Bibles in our homes and we didn't have them on our phones and a whole generation went by without people memorizing much of it and then we found a Bible in the church that was falling apart and we were fixing it up, finding that, that word of God and reading it for the first time. Seeing it through fresh eyes, can you imagine? While Joshua experienced God's work, King Josiah rediscovered God's word. We're going to pick up his story in verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hand of workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And then, because that was what he was told to do, and then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Remember, in biblical times, this was a universal sign of mourning. And the king commanded a bunch of names, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do all that is written according concerning us. So they do that. They go and visit a, a prophetess. Her name is Huldah, who pronounces God's judgment against Jerusalem. But she also says this to the king. Why don't you skip down to verse 19. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Now, yeah, we're going to read a lot of the next chapter. So flip the page if you need to. Okay? Please, I want you to follow along. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Okay? Because I want you to understand the magnitude of what's about to happen here. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets. So this is a big crowd. Okay? All the people both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar. That's what you did when you were a king. That's where they crowned people. Your coronation would take place by a specific pillar. The king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And this is the most amazing part. And all the people joined in the covenant. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed, that means he took out of their position of authority, he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the, the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah, which was the, the idol of a sex cult, from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to church and finding that in the house? Amazing. Okay, so he, he broke down those houses and, and where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates. Skip down to verse 10. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might listen, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh, his grandfather, had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the, king of, Solomon the king of Israel, this wise man, had built these high places for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, along with, with Molech. These were the horrific bull demons that infants were sacrificed to as a blood sacrifice. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the asherim that filled their, and he filled their places with the bones of men. That was to make them unclean, so people would stay away. Moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. Now, this is interesting, because these altars, they were actually set up to worship the true God, but they were set up outside of his parameters, and so they still became a snare to the people of Israel. He also burned the Asherah. Skip down to verse 19. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. So he's not just doing it in Jerusalem. He's going all throughout the land, right? He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed, this is wild, he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there, sacrificed them on the altars and burned human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Y'all, this guy cleaned house. But it wasn't enough just to get rid of the wickedness and the filth. He had to reinstate what was good and resume what the Lord had commanded. It says, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover 
to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Now remember, the Passover was, was the celebration of God delivering his people uh, from, from slavery in Egypt, right? The, the centerpiece, I guess, of the Passover is, is the fact that there was the sacrifice of a spotless lamb so that the people could be passed over by the Lord despite their sin. It's amazing foreshadowing. Anyway, so, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th, 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. I absolutely love this story because Josiah completely pulled out all the stops. You know, not, not only did, did he resolve to follow God wholly, but all of his ensuing actions showed that he meant every word he said. As one should when one makes a covenant before God. So one thing I, I find wonderful about this narrative is that Josiah, listen, y'all, he was having to undo more than, than half a century of terrible mismanagement of his nation by previous kings. You know, the, the ruler before him was, was Amon. He, he was Jamaican. Uh, no, I'm kidding. He was, he was a terrible king. He only reigned for two years. But his predecessor was Manasseh. He was, he was a horrible king. He ruled in cruelty and terror and idolatry for about 53 years, if I recall correctly. It says that the whole city of Jerusalem had blood from end to end from the reign of this wicked king. He only came to repent near the end of his life when, praise God, I believe it was, it was late enough that, he was, that God saved his soul, but it was just too late to fix all this damage that he had done. But Josiah, Josiah was so resolved. He was so committed to follow God completely that he immediately began to reclaim Jerusalem for the Lord, starting with eradicating every possible evil. You know, like I said, Josiah cleaned house. You know, he, he, he implemented a scorched earth policy to rid his nation of idolatry and evil, even to the point of executing a lot of these false priests which had turned the people away from God, which, by the way, that was appropriate according to the law of Moses. And he did it with the help of the godly people in his nation. He couldn't do this by himself. And I think we can learn something from this. Uh, have any of you guys heard of Michael Cassidy? You, Mike, you haven't heard of Michael Cassidy? I'm, I'm surprised. Not long ago. The, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> but the, here's the thing. It, I just, I, I, know, I, I know you pretty well. And not long ago, there was a group of Satanists, Luciferian Satanists, who put up an idol in the capital of Iowa. Yeah, now you know who he is, Right? And while the wishy-washy Christians in the government were wringing their hands and just, let's try to be winsome, Michael Cassidy, instead, he drove into town, he wasn't from there, went into the Capitol building, knocked the statue over, and beheaded it. Come on, I want to hear, come on. 
<laughs> now, here's the thing. He may end up serving up to a year in prison. He might have to pay a fine but because he didn't have the legal authority to do that, but, but neither did Gideon. You know, I, I tell you, I think it took great moral courage. Who knows? Maybe he was led by God to do that. Now, obviously, we are not in a theocratic nation as Israel was. I'm not recommending that you guys run to the nearest you know, Chinese food place and knock over the Buddhas and all that stuff. That's not, but, but, but as Christians, listen, as Christians, we ought to be every bit as insistent that we eradicate every possible evil in our own lives. Whether we like it or not, every single one of us, every single one of us has a tendency in our flesh to build altars in our hearts to false gods. It might take the form of, of lust, pride, fits of rage. You know, it, it might be gossip, it might be lying, it might be laziness, it might be gluttony. It, you know, it, it might be a general lack of self-control, but in every case, we are in some sense building an altar to ourselves, and we need to tear those suckers down. We need to have zero tolerance for Satan to have outposts in our lives. We need to be absolutely brutal in our attempts to mortify the flesh. That's an old term, it's a Puritan term, but, but essentially what it means is to kill your sinful nature. Okay, now, now sometimes we, we can do that by cutting out things that cause us to stumble, right? Because there's specific things, specific weaknesses that we have. But often, it, it's the desires within us that even without any external stimuli, they still, they still cause us to, to desire things that are wicked. And we need to starve those things to death. Those desires in us, if we don't give in, if we don't feed them, we can starve them. We may never be completely rid of those desires, but they can become latent in our lives because we refuse to feed them. We need to take it seriously. And, and, and like Josiah, who, who then, he, he obeyed God with his whole heart. I went to the wrong one, but that's okay. He obeyed God with his whole heart. We need to have these empty spaces where we remove something. We need to get that filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen, friends, listen. We do that by practicing righteousness. Stop practicing sin. Start practicing righteousness. Like Josiah, celebrating the Passover with the people. We have to practice obeying that which God has commanded of us. And the best way that we do that is, is the best way to keep from doing evil is to fill our time with that which is good. I love verse 25. This would make a fantastic epitaph. Talking about Josiah. It says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. How would you like to have that on your tombstone? I think that'd be amazing. What a wonderful legacy. You know? All right, it's time to get to our third character. Don't worry. Um, I realize this is a long message. This last one's going to be short because you're very familiar with him. Okay? 
nearly 700 years after Josiah began his reign, the earthly ministry of Jesus began. I want you to remember that Jesus' name actually means the Lord saves. It's the word Yeshua, okay, which is the same name as Joshua. And you know what Josiah means? It means the Lord heals, which is actually one of the meanings for the Greek word that's translated to save. I think that's really cool. Anyway, of course, Jesus, Jesus was totally unique because while Joshua experienced God's work and while Josiah rediscovered God's word, Jesus was and is God. He was God in the flesh. And he's the person that all our hopes rest on because he accomplished what none of us could do. We're reminded of what he did in one of this morning's readings. We're going to revisit that really quickly. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. After telling us for the entire chapter 11 of, uh, of Hebrews about all these wonderful heroes of the faith, the author then says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what we have here is the instruction to throw off the sin that encumbers us you know, that, that weighs us down. It, it's like we were just talking about, wouldn't it be stupid to try to run a foot race wearing a suit of armor? Wouldn't it? Or chained it to a bunch of anchors? Why would you even want to try it like that? We need to rid ourselves of sin, and we do this by focusing on Christ himself. Because the fact is, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that reminds us that he overcame the world in a way that, that we, we could not. He lived completely without sin. And if he had failed, his sacrifice for our sin would not have been accepted. Okay? And speaking of that sacrifice, this passage also reminds us that he suffered and died and rose to new life on our behalf. Why? So that... We can be forgiven our sins. But not just that. So we can also forsake those sins and follow Him. The next two verses tell us how. Okay? Listen, we're almost done. Listen. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Weary in what? He answers his own question. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Did you catch that? That is how seriously we should take our sin. Our deeds, our words, our thoughts. We need to examine ourselves and strive to be more like Jesus, even though it's going to hurt. It should hurt. To kill part of ourselves. But that's that's what we're supposed to do. 
resisting sin to the point of shedding blood. In, in this generation, this place, this day and age, that's likely going to be metaphorical for us. But it was literal for some of those first century Christians who refused to offer the pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar, and they were tortured and killed for their obedience to Christ. Does that thought scare you? To think that that's what could be coming? Let me, let me encourage you to let it invigorate you instead. Because listen, friends, Jesus not only commands us to take up our cross daily, he also empowers us to do the same thing that he did, which is reject sin and walk in obedience to the Father. Now, just because we're never going to do it perfectly, because Jesus did, we will not do it perfectly. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I mean, God's mercy and grace isn't there to give us an excuse not to try. It's supposed to, to serve as motivation to give it everything we've got. To pour ourselves into submission of God's will. You know, to, to, that, that means killing our sinful nature and walking as Jesus walked. So, friends, when we see ourselves beginning to suffer because of, of faithful and godly allegiance to Christ, that is one of the greatest signs that our faith walk is genuine. So be resolved, church. Be resolved to stand for Christ. Be resolved to suffer for Christ. And stick with it. I know this is really heavy especially for a first of the year. But we need to hear it. And we need to do it. We need to stand firm. So I just want to say that if, if you have not stood firm for Jesus, if you've not allowed him to, so to speak, plant his flag on you, you have that opportunity today. You can confess Christ as your Lord and Savior and that He is the Son of God and you can be baptized according to what the Bible teaches. Can't do it without faith. It won't do any good. You have to believe on Christ. But guys, He commands us to be obedient. The Bible is very clear that faith isn't just mental assent. It's not just checking boxes. Faith means Whatever you believe, that's going to affect how you are, how you live, what you do. That's real biblical faith. It leads to obedience. And I want to encourage you to be resolved. Being wishy-washy and namby-pamby doesn't help anybody. It harms your witness. It harms your faith. It harms your, your walk. It harms those around you. Get resolved. Follow Christ. Let's pray. God, I, I ask in Jesus' name for each person here, Lord, that they take this seriously. God, I know it was heavy. I know, God, I, I, I felt a, a burden to, to, to say these things, Lord, and I believe that you're going to take them and do with them as you will. Your word promises us that, that everything that you speak, it doesn't fall to the ground without accomplishing that for which you have purposed it for, God, just like the rain falling to earth. 
And Lord, we ask that you help all of us to grow and to be changed and to experience uh, this great work that the Holy Spirit can, can bring about in us. Lord, help us to be so fully resolved that we refuse to commit sins that used to be dear to us because we recognize that they harm our relationship with you. We pray, Father, that you encourage us to be faithful to you in every possible way. Lord, if there's anyone here who needs to profess their faith and be baptized, if there's anyone who who needs to come and ask for prayer or, um, God, whatever people here need, I, I pray that you encourage them to do that today. Don't let anybody leave this place without being obedient to you. In Jesus' name.